You're now plugged into the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Delphi Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Today I hosted Ryan Zur, who's the founder of Dialectic, and Jake Bruckham, who is the founder and CEO of CoinFund, two extremely successful venture capitalists and founders who have collectively backed projects worth tens of billions of dollars, have backed hundreds of projects, have dealt with numerous bear markets. Jake goes back to 2015. He's one of the earliest funds. Ryan just celebrated his 10th year in crypto. These are two people that everyone can learn a lot about. We went through a lot during our conversation together. We talked markets, we talked Genesis and DCG, Binance and Tether. We talked what we expect out of Web3 with Elon messing around with Twitter on the Web2 side. We talked investment DAOs. We went on to NFTs and art and games and IP. And we ended with global macro and AI and a couple of interesting predictions. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. I'm excited to be hosting again after a brief hiatus. And uh, let me know what you think. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have on Ryan Zur, who is the founder of Dialectic, and Jake Bruckham, who's the founder and CEO of CoinFund. Both have been on several times. Uh, both are friends who have backed projects worth tens of billions of dollars, who have dealt with founders across the entire crypto space. They've dealt with the most unique problems um, and overcome them for projects and for themselves. So I think we could learn a lot from both of you guys. So excited to uh, excited to chat. Thanks for having us, Tommy. It's it's always great to chat with you. Cool, guys. Well, let's let's dive right in. Um, Ryan, let's get a brief overview from you, maybe 30 seconds, and then we'll hop to Jake and then we'll dive into the podcast. My name is Ryan Zer. Um, I actually just two weeks ago celebrated a decade in crypto. Um, at this point, I think one of the things I'm most proud of, of is sitting at the eye of the storm of the three major cycles. So mining 2012, 2013, um, with Polychain, uh, we dominated sort of the SAFT and ICO era of 2017, and then have been uh, very grateful to, to sort of be back in the mix with DeFi Summer in 2020, and then Plater and Gaming in, in 2021. Um, you know, actually Plater and Gaming driven a lot from your thesis around uh, around Axie uh, and 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 other games, as as we saw that really bring in a whole new cohort of of users and and energy into the space. Thanks so much, Ryan. Jake, what about yourself? Well, CoinFund, you know, launched in July of 2015 is really one of the first investment firms looking at digital assets as an asset class. Um, the thesis was pretty successful you know, that digital assets would become such a class. Uh, and we're now in our eighth year of full-time investing in the space. We um, have a team of over 30 folks. Most of them are in New York, a bunch of folks in Miami, um, including myself and a couple of folks in Boston. You know, at this point, we've backed over 150 uh, different kind of uh, different kinds of companies and, and projects and in the industry and, um, you know, sort of practice a pretty technical discipline where really try to dig into the technology that people are building uh, and a very hands-on one where, you know, we're next to founders as they're building uh, products and services uh, for the space. So it's been a tough year in 22, but we're excited to keep going um, and see a lot of uh, interesting stuff ahead in, in next year. 
Jake, I think Ryan and I are smirking because now we know we could offload some of that technical DD to coin fund. Ryan and I could focus on other parts of the investment uh, DD. <laughs> uh, but let's uh, let's dive into the state of the market, guys. I mean, we Ryan, you just said you celebrated your 10th year in crypto. Jake, you started a fund in 2015. For me, this is my third bear market, but two as a VC. I mean, we're, we're in kind of a very weird market here. Uh, Ryan, how are you thinking through the state of the market from, I guess, just the bear market perspective it, with the context on, are you as aggressively allocating and funding projects here and, and going risk on, or, or are you just going fully risk off here? Yeah, I think there's two sort of countervailing um, trends for us that, that, that we're in constant discussion on. Um, one is sort of not a global macro beyond crypto, but, but global within crypto, where very clearly there are more shoes to drop on, uh, on, on the shakeout here. Um, so for example, uh, an asset that, that I, I believe both Jake and I hold in, in certain weight, um, Filecoin went down really precipitously this past weekend. Our information is that potentially DCG was doing a massive sell-off of of that asset that they um, that they'd hold, held for you know close to six seven years, um, and so we see these signs of still more major players that that will have to um, you know come to some level of transparency on the challenges they face, and so we you know we see at least one more quarter of of headwinds um, before we we really shake the space out. But then the other, I think, gives us a great hope is that crypto native values are coming into focus. That, you know, for a decade, we've been hearing that the institutions are coming, that the retail is coming, and really OGs have been moving the, the market for the last decade, and that's going to continue be, to be the case for the, for the next few years, that these truly crypto native use cases built by crypto natives for crypto natives are going to continue to be the interesting opportunities in the space. I mean, I, I really agree with that, Ryan. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about with our investors in the wake of FTX is that, you know, FTX was not a failure of technology. It was not like FTX, the business had a bad business model. It was not like it was hacked, you know, um, it was a very traditional kind of failure. And if we had adopted more of these decentralization technologies like DeFi, you know, smart contracts, we could have potentially mitigated some of the risks that we've seen play out in FTX. There's a few things to say about the state of the market. Um, one is just prices. I think in the beginning of the year, we saw uh, kind of the, the public markets come down, but private markets were, um, you know, it took a little bit longer, but finally did come down toward the end of the year. Um, you know, it's it's been it's been a reset for founders for sure. I think deal flow has come down, but I think actually founder quality, meanwhile, has gone up. Like we do see a lot of great um, Web two folks coming in. You know, these are professionals because if you're coming in in a bear market, that means you're uh, you're here to ride the next wave, you know, uh, of the next cycle and that's a great strategy and actually a great timing for, for people who um, want to build meaningful applications in the space. And I think like the, the other positive thing is just um, a lot of the infrastructure is a lot more mature. Like Ryan um, had mentioned before um, kind of the ICO boom of, of 2017, 
you know, the reality is like a lot of those projects didn't have enough infrastructure to take the projects that they were promising really to market. And I think that's changed dramatically. We have um, some great infrastructure now. We have storage, we have computation, we have video transcoding, we have domain name services. Um, and what we're starting to see is that founders are starting to take these products, uh, these infrastructural products and turn them into consumer products. So, you know, I anticipate that we'll be um, doing a lot more consumer tech, uh, maybe like 20 to 30%, whereas normally our bread and butter is very much uh, infra. It's pretty interesting, really interesting views, guys. I mean, the crazy thing when I'm thinking about kind of this cleanup of the space with all the carnage from FTX and Voyager and BlockFi and others is, you know, I did never expected somebody as legitimate as Barry to get caught up in this, right? Like, I don't know Barry at all, but seems like a very professional operator, built a couple of amazing businesses. And now we're trying to figure out how they pay Genesis Genesis's loans back. And the only way that I've been able to slice and dice it is that He's going to have to sell Grayscale for a couple hundred, uh, you know, a few times uh, their two, three hundred million a year in revenue, then probably sell their ETHE and GBTC holdings, then potentially Barry backstops or they sell part of their VC book. Like, I don't really, I can't really figure out a way that they get out of this in a super clean manner, but I just find it just odd that we're having like the most legitimate players also being somewhat taken out. It, it, it does surprise me somewhat that you're seeing people that that you know you considered as crypto natives and ogs in the space um getting caught up in this i think it's emblematic of the fact that you know from DeFi summer onward the whole space just got drunk on debt right that that a lot of the last run was debt infused and you know that's fine because there's been really interesting primitives that have come around crypto lending but um being just like responsible with LTV and responsible with with interest rate coverage and 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 also diversification in your loan book these types of like baseline things um you know we would have we would have assumed that a lot of these entrepreneurs would be would be beyond this in the the DCG uh Genesis grayscale sort of industrial complex there is a future in which they just like you know they allow uh like one entity to die i would i would not assume like it would not necessarily be a net present value positive investment to um you know to be selling dcg or selling like the gp on on grayscale in order to prop up the lending book you could maybe just allow the lending book to uh to go into chapter 11 and 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 keep the other book uh healthy and safe it, te- it you know generally the psychology of an entrepreneur is this 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 desire to like keep it all um and so it'll be an interesting it'll be an interesting story that plays out to 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 see whether you know you allow a culling effect and a natural leaning of of the organization or if there's a a grand deal to be had to sort of keep it all together. Jake, what do you think on DCG? Was it a surprise to you? Um, I mean, it definitely was a surprise to some extent. You know, I share kind of your um, feelings, Tom, that, you know, this is a longstanding business in the space and one of the bigger businesses. And um, it's just kind of unfortunate um, you know, my my focus, just like with um, 
all the other uh, unfortunate kind of <laughs> fallouts from this. Well, first of all, I, I totally agree with Ryan. I, I don't think we've seen and heard about all of the impact here yet. So I think there's going to be more. But where my mind just goes is, again, um, this is going to put a huge dent in institutional um, investor interest and not just for like crypto funds, but just for the space broadly. And unfortunately, that's not... Um, that's kind of not where we want it to be uh, this year. Um, but I also don't think that, um, I don't think this is going to be a long-term thing. I think the space has been always able to recover uh, from these volatilities and there's a lot of lessons to be learned, especially in, in, in this cycle. Yeah. I remember after the, the Dow hack, uh, I was at an Ethereum conference and a bunch of of, of the Ethereum team members were really disappointed that, you know, ETH had gone from close to 30 to back under 10. And I mentioned to them, mm -hmm. I said, well, look at, look at on the bright side, you'll get your last ever opportunity to buy ETH sub $10. <laughs> and so you should look at that in this positive light. And I think, I think, you know, here we, we see the same thing that, uh, yeah. you're probably going to get one last kick at the can, which by the way, 2021 version of you never thought imaginable to get ETH <laughs> sub a thousand dollars. And you should be looking at it as, you know, a generational opportunity that could, that could change lives. And, and, you know, to Jake's point, the outcome will be the same, right? Like we're going to get the institutional adoption. We're going to get the retail adoption over time. We've just pushed back that timeline and you can look at that as like, oh no, you know, it's not going to happen as fast as I wanted it to. Or you can look at it as, oh, I get one more kick at the can in something that I'm high conviction on. And, you know, and, and that's going to be great for me in, on a long time horizon. That's a bullish outlook from Ryan. I support <laughs> It, it is bullish. I'm just wondering, Ryan, walking into that conference with all these developers crying and he's, you know, got the checkbook out. I'll buy your ETH at 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> they probably, they probably hated you, Ryan, for like a weekend. But uh, no, it was, yeah. it, it was all good laughs. I remember I was at a, a dinner with Jordy Bellina um, uh, talking about this and, and he, he sent me a message a few days later saying that, that, he bought some more ETH after that combo. So <laughs> if you can get really brilliant people like that, you know, to double double back down on something that they're building themselves and and believing in, then then we're going to be just fine. Uh, again, yeah. you know, it's one of the reflections that I've had over the last month as I've concluded this decade is that for the decade, for the entirety of this decade. You've been hearing the institutions are coming, the retail is coming, and you know for the entirety of this this decade, it's really been driven by crypto natives for crypto natives, and I think we're going to get a couple more right. years of that now before we get that you know that step up into into broad spread uh, institutional retail adoption. Yeah, I'm with you, and I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time speculating here, but. I guess you both mentioned that, or I think you both mentioned that there's probably more shoes to drop, right? I mean, it takes time for founders to figure out, you know, look, I just don't have the cash anymore, or, you know, I don't, I'm trying to raise and I still can't raise and I can't fill this hole, or I don't have the money personally to keep this going. I, I guess that makes sense from the, the seed or the early stage projects. Are you guys at all concerned with any larger systemic risks? Are you guys worried about Tether, Binance, uh, 
Coinbase, I mean, Silvergate. Take, like there are still large players here that generally appear fine and most have, you know, public filings, you know, Coinbase and Silvergate specifically, but others don't, right? A lot of this, we're just kind of taking the founder's word for it and, and kind of hoping. Yeah, I would like CZ to not delay very much longer before coming out with with sort of audited proof of reserves. I think there is a, a you know, you don't want to call anything in crypto too big to fail, but they're over 50% of volume. And by the way, thousands of low liquidity, low volume uh, uh, incipient projects depend on that platform for any level of, of sort of liquidity and volume. And so that is, you know, that's one of particular risk. Um, I remain thoroughly concerned uh, of the risk that, that say, a Silvergate would face, especially as we see Bitcoin potentially dip into like $12,000, $10,000 territory. Because the big question that I would have there is what is their microstrategy exposure? Because when microstrategy starts to unwind, well, then we, you know, then we've got a cascading waterfall that that we should really be mindful of, um, and so there are those those elements, and I would like to see leaders in the space sort of be rushing to demonstrate, you know, short up financials, uh, audited books, and it, it, you know, and and just a certain like financial conservatism in this moment um, that I think that they have a like a, a global responsibility to do so. Um, and, and, and that's going to be like an important next step forward to make sure that, that any last shoes to drop are, are sort of independent shoes and not systemic shoes. Yeah. I I'm not like um, Tom, I'm not worried about Coinbase maybe from a structural or like systemic perspective, but what we do see is that, you know, Coinbase is kind of the premier public company in crypto. They sort of represent, you know, to the broader investment world how crypto is doing. And the the volatility of the cycle is really like not looking that great from a from a business perspective. I mean, if you just look at the at the stock chart, it'll give you a sense. Um, but there's also you know concerns that like can we can we make the unit economics on this business work in this kind of down cycle, right? So it's just kind of negative vibes around the bigger companies and certainly companies like um, Binance carry a certain kind of risk. But, you know, to those people, I say, look, this is a private company and it's offshore and it's less than regulated. And if you don't want to keep your possessions in such a in, in such a place, then you should use a DEX. Yeah, and no, you should I, probably I, just I, use a DEX anyways, right? Should use a yeah, I, no I was what. listening to, yeah, I, I was listening to Jesse Powell of Kraken on Laura Shin's podcast, and I love that guy. He was oh, literally man. like, "Do not keep your assets on my exchange. Like, I don't want the liability." I was like, "What a baller line to not." It's against this whole business model. I uh, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I uh, full disclosure, I've been a uh, a Kraken shareholder for quite some time and a very happy one. Um, he he has uh, walked the line of being sort of crypto native, privacy focused, but then also compliant. I think the best of any entrepreneur in the space, uh, I tip my hat to him. Um, but you know, it's interesting. One of the things that we could see happen because 
guys like CZ and, you know, and his close um, comrade, Justin Sun, have made so much money in MEV the last few years that they're so well capitalized personally. It would be nice to see, say, Binance buy their way into compliance by taking over a $9 billion Coinbase, right? Uh, that's unlikely to to practically occur because um, Brian has more than half the voting shares. And I, you know, Brian, Brian's obviously independently wealthy from his times at, at uh, uh, Airbnb and then obviously his, his Bitcoin holdings and what have you. So I don't see Brian selling his, um, you know, his life's work for, for less than $10 million, but it, it, it is an outcome that would be, um, systemically very positive for the space in this moment if 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 Binance sought uh regulation through an acquisition. Seems like the the mother of all melding of company cultures. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very hard to pull that off. It seems seems very different. But I mean up this line of questioning, so the space has changed a lot from cleaning out a lot of bad actors, bankrupting a lot of bad companies and then on the Web3 side, we're also dealing with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, rapid firing changes, showing how much censorship there really is, You know, trying to make a business model here that works. It seems like there's literally no better time for a Web3 social media project to pop up and take control here. And if it's not going to happen now, I just don't see any reason why it would happen in the future. I, I mean, Jake, you spend an insurmountable amount of time like viewing the technicals of all these projects and you guys are pretty involved on the web three side. What's your take on, I guess, Twitter under Elon. And then if you want to comment on that or just parlay this right into the web three side. Um, well, I mean, I have some maybe like strong opinions about, about Twitter. Give us the strong ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, generally speaking, like I've had just a, like a really fun time, you know, watching, um, the changes unfold and and kind of the the reaction of uh, the observers to what's going on. But I generally think that what Elon is doing is um, directionally correct, but it's not going to go sort of all the way that we we in Web three world, I guess, would want. And so, what I mean by directionally correct, for example, is like I believe that Twitter, you know, should have a mission of being a free speech platform, and I think a lot of people think of it that way. On you know on all sides. Um, but at the same time, there's people who are like, oh my God, um, advertisers are leaving Twitter. Like Elon is running Twitter into the ground. But when I kind of hear that, I, I hear a kind of cognitive dissonance. I'm like, if we're running a free speech platform, we should want all the advertisers to leave. Um, we should not have a free speech platform that is beholden to advertisers. And so when Elon talks about, you know, getting, um, Twitter blue to be $8 or $11 or $20, whatever it is now a month, you know, you're really talking about converting Twitter's revenue into a recurring revenue from an advertising model. And for sure, we can't switch completely to recurring revenue today, but maybe if there's growth, like we can directionally get away from, from advertising uh, more and more. So I, I, you know, I like those aspects of it and, and some of the changes obviously have been, very sudden and, you know, people, people need to deal with that kind of change. Um, but the, you know, the, the, on the other hand, the kind of disappointment in me with Twitter is, and I'm, and I'm speaking as someone who uses Twitter for like 
I don't know, 14 hours a week or something. Um, so pretty actively, right? I just don't think that we'll ever quite get to the um, free speech platform that we may envision as long as Twitter is centralized. And I do not think that um, I do not think that Elon uh, Elon's plan sort of includes like the decentralization of it. And so I think that the decentralization of Twitter will happen through natural free market competition. And we do see a bunch of Twitter clones in the market today. We've seen like Orbis.club. We've seen Orb on the Lens Network. We've seen Farcaster. These are all like very familiar, uh, almost like incarnations of Twitter, but, you know, with decentralization properties. I do think it's going to take so much more, though, to get like the vast majority of people to switch to that, to those platforms, right? It's just very hard. And Web3... You know, and and we all know this as crypto investors, right? Um, it's just not quite there in terms of usability, but we're getting there rapidly. Are, are there any crypto social projects that you look at as being a best first uh, attempt at maybe able it, being able to solve some of these these problems and and having the UI such that they can onboard a hundred million plus users? Like whether That's it's a great Lens question, or Farcaster or any of these others. I think the strategies are there in the market, and I'll, I'll be specific in a second, but they're not all sort of concentrated in one product. So, for example, you know, when you go to Farcaster, you get a really, really familiar Twitter experience. Like you could see that if all of the people that I know overnight switch to this thing, it wouldn't be like a huge difference in in user interface of, of like how I interact with that. Right. So that's a nice property to have like a low friction, you know, low cognitive, you know, barrier to switching. And then we see other projects who are like, Hey, you know, we can use um, token incentives and crypto rewards, right. To really help people make a switch. But at the same time, a lot of those strategies, they're really good at like converting people, but they're not good at retaining people. So what is it? What is that secret sauce of like retention? And I, I feel like for Twitter, you know, if I were working on this problem as a founder, I would I would do what Farcaster has done, which is I create this like very familiar interface, and then I would do what some of the like DeFi projects have done, which is coordinate like all my all the most important people on Twitter to go to this thing at the same time. Like like you can imagine the following strategy, right? You say. You know, you, like, what if I were to ask you guys, like, okay, go through your, the list of people you follow on Twitter and tell me, like, which ones of them would need to switch to a new solution for you to also switch, right? And you can, like, do that survey for everybody on Twitter. And once, like, everyone kind of agrees to do it, we say, okay, January 1st, 2023, at 2 p.m. Eastern time, we're all just going to jump from Twitter to this new thing. Like that might actually work because then you jump, you get a similar experience, you get a token reward and all your friends are there. And like, maybe that creates retention, but I have not Ryan seen like any particular project, like hit all of those notes of like UX uh, conversion incentives and then retention. Uh, Tom or Jake, do either one of you think that it's because we haven't got incentivization right, or is it because we haven't got UI UX right? 
Uh, well, it's, it's, tr- I'm not sure. It's a tricky question, right? Cause you do see a lot of people jumping to Mastodon right now. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that Mastodon like doesn't have as good of a, of an experience as Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people are doing it. So, so in that case, maybe like the motivation is more like political. And then I, we can also point to like some very effective token incentive programs. I mean, we, we, we have helium, we bootstrapped a global network from a thousand nodes, like a million nodes in a couple of years. We've, you know, we've seen like vampire attacks and DeFi, like you name it. Right. Um, and so we do have effective like rewards programs. What maybe is less explored in the market is retention. It's like, what, like what's the killer app for users that just keeps them in one place or like, you know, like what's the, you know, what's the core functionality that keeps them there? I'm not sure. Yeah. The, yeah, the thing that I, you know, I've been in, interested in crypto social as I, I know you have, we, we, you and I talked about it, I think like 2014, 2015 and the days of like Akasha and what have you. And I had mistakenly made the assumption that, and this is just like excitement around the incentivization that crypto can sort of natively program into things, that if we could get the incentive model right, you know, that if we could get the creators to realize, hey, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, or otherwise, I'm kind of capturing less than 10% of the value that I'm creating. I can come over here and capture 80 to 90% of the value that I'm creating, which is going to be net positive for me, that we would have gotten a great migration. Um, back at that time, I used to use the example of Jenna Marbles, who at the time was creating 70, 80 million for YouTube a year, and she was making five. Um, but you could you could make the same argument today about the Paul brothers or or whatever other influencer you want you want to talk about. I have been surprised that we haven't been able to sign up a, like a, a handful of really big ticket influencers that bring you know hundreds of thousands or even millions of users with them just by doing that. You know, like why hasn't Lens or Farcaster just gone out to one of these guys and put you know millions of their tokens into the the hands of of some major influencers to start to try to create that that network effect um i assume it's not because of you know lack of effort but it is interesting to note that we have not really converted major influencers that drive you know that that drive the masses this is true of western social media and also even more surprisingly it's true of eastern social media where I would have expected that financial incentivization would have driven what what they call out their KOLs or key opinion leaders into new new products and new uh, and new platforms. But here I, we are, you know, in the same situation. I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point, Ryan. And, and I've actually seen founders, um, you know, somewhat successfully execute a strategy where um, you know influencers help to bring their audience into a product and really like bootstrap it. I think maybe the best example is I've worked with a founder called, uh, named Adi Seidman. Today he runs um, Revel.xyz, which is a mobile app. You can create and like trade NFTs. I'm an advisor there. But but this has been, you know, Adi's worked on you now in the past, right? And like a lot of his strategy has been around exactly that, like bring in a bunch of influencers, bring in their audiences. Um, and this forms sort of a base community for, for an app. And I have to say, like, Adi is probably 
you know, one of the founders that I trust most in the world to create a social media product. I know how hard that is, but he, you know, he has um, a lot of talent in, in being able to, to, to make them. Um, but I get, but at, at the same time, you know, again, while I see some of the success here, I don't know if we're quite there on retention and web three, like, like the really frustrating part for me as an investor, right. Is when kind of outside folks come in and they say, well, you know, crypto is so exciting, but what is the killer app of crypto? And we're building infrastructure, right? And so <laughs> for the most part, and it's really hard to say. And like when you when you talk to when you talk to infrastructure builders, they'll say, well, the killer app is that you, you know, have enough infrastructure to build a killer app. And it's <laughs> sort of this like re, you know, recursive um, answer that is very unsatisfying. But I think when people start to kind of unravel like what are, what really are the killer value propositions of blockchains for mainstream users, I think it'll go faster. But I'll give you kind of like where I want crypto to be. So when you think about, I'm a, I'm a big fan of AI and the recent advances in generative AI that have been kind of happening. And the thing about AI is that it's, it's application level and it's the kind of application that number one, I could explain to you the value proposition of this app in three seconds, I could say, Ryan, Tom, you know, you put in a text prompt and the computer will draw a picture of whatever you put in. And then you can go and try that on a website in about three seconds, right? So like what crypto product do you guys know that you can explain and try in a, you know, in this very like short amount of time? It's like, there's very few, but once, um, once we kind of get there, like, I think, I think it'll go a lot more towards retaining uh, audiences. One of, so Ryan, I thought you brought up a really good point in the biz dev effort. I think a couple of projects are probably sleeping on that and should take your advice. But I guess the one counterpoint I would point to is the music side. Like, I don't know how successful Audius has been as of late. Um, and I have no interest there financially, but it seems like early on, they did bring a lot of really successful, uh, you know, musicians with a lot of reach, right? And I mean, I don't know if that platform has like at all display Spotify. I, I really don't think it has. And that's obviously very different from having a famous founder like Jenna Marbles create videos or create content or, you know, post tweets on Mastodon, et cetera. It's a very different sell. You really need like a, a, a really big distribution channel for the music side to make the switch. But like, why haven't we seen any success at all there? Right? Like I, I'm still going back to your earlier question, like, is it UI or is it the incentives? And I'm, I'm not sure yeah, which one it is yet. It, if we get into to art and culture, I think it, it it's important to look at sort of historically how you know art and culture has been remunerated. Um, and if you look at all the different types of artists, you know, visual artists, conceptual artists, actors, musicians, what have you, the the category of artists that has been most oppressed throughout history has been music artists, without question. Um, I can't remember the number, but it's something embarrassing, like less than 2% of the value that is created by, by music is actually captured by the artist. Um, that compares to somewhere in the twenties for, for sort of visual artists and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so there may just be, uh, uh, you know, such dejection in music artists around streaming as an income opportunity anyways, that there is less in, like interest in moving around because 
first, you know, streaming revenues are not compelling to begin with. Um, I remain relatively optimistic that we will find a, a mechanism with NFTs that allow music artists to find financial and artistic freedom for the first time. That will be really amazing and, and will unlock an incredible amount of value and that, that you'll move in that way. Um, you know, something like the, the model that catalog has where you can adjust sort of ownership versus streaming rights. And, you know, the, the artist takes a certain amount and the, and, and, and the owner takes a certain amount and then they kind of bring revenues forward in that way. That, that's, that would have been something that that's really cool and may, may still be, we we're optimistic there, but um, I think for music, particularly, you need a radically different business model than the streaming, like the way that like streaming disrupted CDs in a very different business model, you need a fully different business model altogether. And this time around, you need something in which the, you know, the value chain accrues more to the creator. And I, I would like to think that like crypto will be a pathway that accrues more value to the creator for all artistic forms. Um, I, th I think that's, that's really important and whoever has success probably needs to check that box in order to have success. I would, I would add to that, that maybe like the vivid vision that crypto native folks have had for like the, the business model, um, of music NFTs is like revenue stream sharing, but that model, um, has a couple of pitfalls. So one pitfall is that you know, most of the royalty streams today are kind of in legacy music. And those contracts are, you know, owned by traditional uh, record labels. And those record labels aren't like jumping to disrupt themselves, right? Um, now that we potentially mitigate that by saying, okay, that's fine. We'll just sort of start tokenizing artists going forward. And over time, we'll just overtake that industry, put them out of business. But then that runs into the pitfall that, you know, these kinds of tokens likely fall under a regulatory regime in the United States, at least that isn't that friendly, like securities regime. Um, and so it's, it's quite tricky to navigate. And then, and then there's like um, a couple of other, you know, models that might be possible. I was actually kind of surprised to learn the other day that, uh, um, you know, some record labels have actually used NFTs for album art rather than, you know, anything to do with uh, royalties and stuff like that. But, but how big, how, how big are those markets really, you know, uh, you know, in the context of the NFT space? Yeah, we've seen some record labels, like, you know, there was uh, a lot of discussion around Death Row, um, a record label that I'm sure we all know and love, you know, wanting to be the first NFT record label. And I mm. thought that was super exciting especially because their catalog, their catalog is meaningful. Uh, it, it kind of hits the right demographic group for our, for our ecosystem. Um, and, and there has been some interest in, and that's probably the most famous example. But I think to your point, Jake, we often find ourselves in paralysis of analysis in America around the security uh, issue. And if we could get clarity on the regulatory issues such that you could, Hey, uh, like tokenize a, uh, you know, a record portfolio and then buy that 
driven from a DAO or a decentralized community or an ICO of some kind or something like something like that. And nobody's going to jail for that. And nobody's like losing sleep that there is security and, and things like that. We could, we could play around with that experimentation. I think it'd be really, really important for, for music artists in particular that we, like we would find the right model really quickly if we could just have some green pastures to experiment with yeah, and, and, you know, and not all run amok with Gensler just because we're trying new experiments. Totally so agree. Ryan. Clarity would be nice. Yeah. Like, like regulatory clarity would be nice, Tom, but also like sensible regulatory clarity would be even nicer. Yeah. And, and to Ryan's point, like, you know, Hey, like, can we get a sandbox? Can we get, um, can we get some rope to try stuff? Can we innovate? You know, I, unfortunately, you know, and I, I love America. I'm an immigrant here. I've lived the, the American dream, but, but I'm sort of a little bit ashamed of our innovation position as, as it's sort of played out in crypto for the last decade. Um, like, I really think we need to be I, doing I more. I agree. And just as a side note, Ryan, I didn't, I didn't ping you as a, uh, a hip hop rap guy. I had you pinged oh, as like a man. deep house. I, I was off there. Well, All right. La- last time I was on here, I, I yeah. showed you the the Biggie Smalls crown and and that's, also that's had true. like the Nas lost tapes in the background. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, well, Jake, golden... you got a couple of guitars in the back too. <laughs> yes, sir. Our well, childhood was the golden age of the genre, right? I mean, '90s rap, East just, First West. Like, there's there's just nothing that'll ever touch it. So, uh, it, yeah, like it, you know. In fact, a few months ago, somebody who owns a massive uh, library of of Nas tracks uh, offered them for sale. And I thought to myself, man, like if you could put a DAO together to to, you know, to bid on that the way that like Constitution DAO went down, but just like learning the lessons of Constitution DAO, why not? Right. Like, why not unlock that thing? You've got really consistent cash flows that you can value this on with a DCF, you know, you've got uh, important sort of cultural heritage. You've got really like all of the necessary inputs for important experimentation, but, you know, to both your points, um, we're, we are uh, embarrassingly laggy on uh, uh, regulatory clarity. And I think at this point, looking from the outside, here over in Switzerland, it looks intentional. It looks like the best way to hold it all back is to not provide rules, is to not provide clarity. And, and that is the way that they're trying to enforce it or or regulate it, is is through through the fear rather than through clarity. Yeah, I, I definitely want to hit on the, the regulatory side, but I want to circle back to one last point on the Web3 side. Um, I guess question for both of you, maybe Jake, we'll, we'll start off with you here. But a lot of the, I don't know, a lot of the issues, I'm going to take Urban as an extreme example. I know you're going to hate me on this, but we're, we're co-investors in some urban plays, so I don't, I don't totally hate it. I love I love the community. I love what they're doing. But it is an extreme example, right? You have full data sovereignty. You know, apps ask to access your data. Uh, you can store that on a hardware device. You can store it on the cloud. It is the extreme example of Web3 by default, right? It's what we all want, right? But it's very hard to onboard, right? Like people, hosting providers have made it very easy. You could just kind of go online. It's getting a lot better, but it's really hard to onboard 
to just have an experience that's subpar versus web two, right? And convincing people at scale, you have a 98% fall off rate with the global populace, right? So to I guess to Ryan's question with, with my setting here is that you are getting the benefit of decentralization, but people do not care, right? People have advanced uh, protection via Apple. Everything's end-to-end encrypted as of this weekend on iCloud. So kind of like why use an Urbit, why use a Web3? It becomes really tough, right? So what would your thesis be for, I don't want to say Urbit, but just overcoming those technical hurdles and not having something that's just comparable to Web2? Um, well, let's take a look at, I mean, there's a few things we could take a look at, but like, let's take a look at Dexis, right? So, you know, I was saying this to Ryan earlier, like my point in the wake of FTX is that, hey, you know, if people adopted more DeFi, we wouldn't have, you know, maybe the FTX fallout wouldn't have been as dramatic. But the reality is that four to 8% of daily volume only is on Dexis, right? Everything else is on centralized exchanges. So why do people make this preference? I took to Twitter to ask that question. And the answer that I got was very, very clear cut. The number one reason that people um, have a hard time with DEXs is because you can't like move a million dollars from your bank account into a DEX. Like it's the steps to do that would be bank to Coinbase to USDC to DeFi. Most people are not gonna do that. Um, The number two reason is feature parity. Like I used to work on Wall Street. I used to be, you know, I used to trade equities among other things. You know, if you take a look at a professional product out there, like, I don't know, interactive brokers, this is a trading platform that has limit orders and stop loss orders and execution strategies and charting and like a whole set of features that are just nowhere to be found in a typical AMM project today, right? So we have not achieved feature parity between decentralized exchanges and even like coin, like, you know, Coinbase, uh, the Coinbase trading platform, right? Never mind interactive brokers. Uh, and then the third set of concerns were like kind of technical long tail concerns, like, hey, I, you know, I'm worried about MEV, I'm worried about front running, I'm worried about this little thing or that little thing. The good news is that all of these things are just sort of technical problems. And what you need is like serious founders who understand their markets really well, creating the technology that speaks to all of those, um, you know, uh, like low points and and missing uh, missing features indexes. But once you get there, you get this like massive advantage from lower counterparty risk. Your technology risk goes basically to zero over time. You know, you're less and less likely to be hacked the the more you interact with these things, right? There's some really great um, trade-offs where you're trading off like human and counterparty risks for technical risks. I'll give you another example in a different area, right? Um, you know, in 2014, Vitalik made a post about DAOs. He, he, you know, he defined DAOs. And this post um, has this beautiful vision of a DAO as essentially like a digital organization, which is an on-chain smart contract. And every um, aspect of the DAO is a method on that smart contract. And it's all taken care of by the blockchain. There's no counterparty risk and so on and so forth. And, you know, in 2022, what does a typical DAO look like? Well, actually, it's um, very little of, the, of today's modern DAO is on chain. And the vast majority 
of the things that you do in a DAO are in Web2 SaaS. You're in Google, you're in Discord, you're in Zoom, you're in like everything but a blockchain. And so like a lot of the thesis error, error that like founders who are working like DAO tooling, like what they, the, the error that they make is that they think that like the DAO experience is this like single experience on a single thing and it just works well. But that's not like, that's not like what DAOs, that's not what the DAO experience is. The DAO, the true DAO experience is a community experience where you're going across 14 different applications and different modalities and you're communicating with other people because that is the main thing that you do in a DAO is just, you, you know, you talk, you talk to people and you try to come to decisions. Um, and so, you know, all that is to say that like this vision of a DAO that we originally had is just wrong. It's just wrong. Like it needs to be re- rebuilt from the ground up. I actually think Urbit has a good chance. And in particular, there's a project in Urbit called Holium um, that creates this like incredible unified experience where you could use many different modalities and applications in the same screen and kind of get to the DAO experience that maybe like we eventually realize we'll, that we want. But to me, these are all, this is all a function of, founder sophistication there's there's like very few founders in crypto and it's getting you know it's getting better and they're coming from it but there's very few founders in crypto like originally who like me worked at amazon as a product manager who created products at scale who created products that a million people would use in an hour you know who created products that have ux for like regular people and it's those founders that need to come in and sort of build you know, those experiences that really help people understand, again, what the killer apps are. And the killer apps could be, you know, DAO infrastructure, could be DEXs that lower your counterparty risk or any number of things. Um, but that's, it's just a function of time. I'll say one last thing, right? Like there's kind of a, there's a, um, a heuristic in, in investor world where, you know, it's kind of like you got to make 10,000 iOS apps before, uh, you know, you get one that actually works and is a profitable business and is pretty good. Well, we're nowhere near creating 10,000 dApps a day or a month or a year, right? In crypto. Um, we need way more developers, way more attention, way more customers, way more of that feedback loop. Um, and it, I guess it just takes time. I think there are a couple of other lessons learned to be drawn from the Urbit example. Urbit is a really unique case that uh, certainly crypto investors need to understand in depth and broadly, you know, I think entrepreneurs and, and any participant in crypto need to understand, you know, so this is a project that was born in the mid to late 2000s. Uh, it's well over a decade old. Um, and a couple of the things, that it, it, you know, I've been really excited about it in, 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 in bursts over a, a period of time, but then my excitement has has, has often waned. Um, and there's been a few reasons for that. One is, and this is really important for Web3, if the distribution and the Gini coefficient of ownership is too high uh, to too few people, there is a certain resistance to using that. Um, I think this is also true of Uniswap where there is a resistance to using that because the Gini coefficient is so excessive and it's 
so concentrated in such a few few number of people that you're accruing value to a really small group of people. Um, and that causes people to be more reserved uh, about the usage of that. And then, you know, Urbit certainly checks the box of that like thousand passionate fans. And it has since probably like, you know, 2014, 2015 territory. Um, but it has not like parlayed that into the hundred thousand or, or, well, I mean, it has parlayed that into the hundred thousand, but like kind of into that millions, that like broad uh, use case, we haven't got there to Jake's point that nobody's building this with tens of millions of people in mind. Right. And, and it really remains this like niche, like cool thing that nobody else knows about. And it, it those two items, how you do token distribution, and then how you think about the user experience for scale and not for kind of cool, like underground uh, thousand passionate or 10,000 or 100,000 passionate fans. Those are two things that that people need to be really, really like thoughtful about in the outset. Otherwise, it becomes a ball and chain on their project rather than an enabler. Like financialization or financial incentives can be a great enabler of an app, but it can also be a huge drag on the app if you do that financial incentive incorrectly. We've seen this in crypto social. We've seen this certainly in Plater and gaming. Um, we, you know, and we've seen this broadly a- across crypto where a, a a specific inflation schedule over a specific period of time ended up being a deterrent to new users far out in the future rather than than something that that acted as you wanted it to which was an incentive to onboard yeah it is yeah there's a lot to think through here i mean what would you guys what would you guys view as the perfect situation for web3 then cuz jake it sounds like you're in disagreement with the positioning of what people view daos to be but if I'm understanding your points correctly, I don't think people want a piecemeal experience. I think they obviously want to a one-stop shop where they can go and do everything they need to, to do. Or yeah, can you maybe just expand a bit on what you think the end game for Web3 would be like from the UI perspective? Absolutely. Um, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you like recognize, well, let, let me take a step back. People have still not really defined what it means to be a DAO in the mainstream sense, right? Like, like, um, let's just write, let's just recognize that, right? Like, like if we say, you know, a DAO is a digital company, you know, there's, there's a lot of like barriers to go to market with that. Like you need a lot of legal tech and like, there's not a lot of it out there. Um, if you say that a DAO, you know, is a, is an investment fund or something, or, uh, or an efficiency technology to do an SPV, you know, there's a lot of like consumer behavior to sort through. But I, I do think that there are use cases in the market today that people generally think of when they think of a DAO. And this is essentially like a grant writing organization or like the governance of a public good. So you can think about like the Uniswap treasury, you know, where token holders will vote or, you know, one project I'm involved with uh, is Nouns DAO, where uh, you know the members vote on how to distribute like treasury funds to further uh, you know the brand of Nouns and so on. 
And, and like when you, when you get into that mode, if you take that like reality of how people like use DAOs today and you start to like break it down on what are people actually doing, right? Well, what they're actually doing is they're coming together in a discord. They're having a lot of back and forth discussions. Um, by the way, that doesn't scale beyond like a few tens of people, right? You can't have a discussion with a million people or a hundred thousand people in the same room. I mean, that's Twitter, I guess. Or, um, ima- or imagine a discussion that requires discretion <laughs> and privacy, like what the valuation of the target is. Oh God. Right. Right. So, so, so what, like you start to get the sense that, you know, we're solving like the wrong freaking problem when we're putting, when we're saying a DAO is a multi-sig wallet, right? The problem that we actually should be solving is a problem of communication modality. How do a hundred thousand people agree, you know, on a, on an outcome of a decision, right? Or like, how do they even talk about what that decision should be? Then, you know, then you have all these other modalities, like people want to evaluate proposals for grants before sending it into uh, kind of a main process. People want to have meetings where they see each other on video. People want to write stuff down. People want to use spreadsheets. And you sort of like, I guess my point is that like the, the actual reality of being in a DAO is everything except going on chain. Like you go on chain at the very end of that process when you've decided what to do and you want to send the money. Like that's what you use, you know, the the chain portion is for settlement. So what is the correct user experience for that? Well, I would posit that the correct user experience is one interface that to your point, Tom, unifies all of the modalities that you need to be in a DAO. You need to have your chat group. You need to have your Google Doc and your spreadsheet. You need to have your sentiment analysis. You need to have your voting software. You need to have your multi-sig where you know the, the proposals get settled and so on. And today, all of those modalities are, as I said, provided by Web2 SaaS, which is a nightmare because first of all, you got to pay for all of them with a credit card. It gets like really expensive. It's incredibly difficult to upgrade a community that has already committed to using a bunch of these tools. It's almost impossible. There's super high friction. And what I think like Urbit and Holium have a chance to do is to start to treat sort of sets of software, um, just like we treat sets of software in JavaScript development using NPM or on Linux using uh, Aptitude, right? These are like package managers that kind of say, hey, like, do you want to install such and such a thing? And you say yes, and then it installs the thing and all of its dependencies, and it it just works. Now, imagine like the future of DAOs could be like, I'm starting a DAO, and I think my DAO is about trading. And so I'm going to need a, you know, charting application, and I'm going to have an, I'm going to need an interface to Uniswap and Balancer. I'm going to have to have a chat group. I'm going to have to have a Zoom call. But I can package all of those things up you know, in a single package that I could just send to, you know, to Tom and say, Tom, if you want to join my DAO, click this link, it opens it up in your personal server. Maybe that's an Urbit, maybe it's like Holium, maybe it's something else. But the point is that if you start to formulate this problem of UX as more of a kind of like technical problem of how do we organize user experience, then you start to gain magical powers. Like you can upgrade your whole community to a completely new set of, of software, you know, simply by, by upgrading your package. And, and that's what I'm hopeful kind of people will see more over time 
and they'll move away from this idea that like it has to be one unified application that gives you a DAO experience, but the experience that you have with your kind of package manager is still unified, right? Like it's still like one screen. It's still, you know, you feel like you're using your own computer uh, or maybe your own phone at some point, right? Um, and so the, the unification is still there, but the capabilities are provided, and this is crucial, I think, by the free market, right? It's like it's like when your iOS, you know, screen has a bunch of apps on it, but all those apps were created by independent developers in response to demand. And I just don't think that a single team can build one DAO experience that fits all. I just think that's impossible. What do you guys think of it, it like broad mandate investment DAOs? You know, it, it, each of us run a, a venture book, uh, either as a, a you know a portfolio of books or or as our our primary business. And each of us have looked at you know probably somewhere in the range of dozens of DAOs, either individual mandates around a single asset. Or broad mandates around, like you know, venture or 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 some category of assets like yielding or what have you, and the you know the observations that come to mind are the current iteration of DAOs. Um, it, it, you know, cri- crypto is very famous for for creating these misnomer acronyms over the years, but DAOs may really take the cake because the current iteration of DAOs are certainly not decentralized. Um, absolutely not autonomous and not particularly well organized either. And, uh, you know, and when I look at them, if you are a crypto investor who hasn't, you know, who doesn't have a DPI over one, uh, in the last three years, you're dead, you're, you're done. Like that's like, there's no way you're getting LP capital at this point. But then if you look at, broad mandate investment DAOs, I would ask like which one has distributed over 100% of of initial capital, especially because 100% of that initial capital was ETH in 2018, 2019, early 2020, and how have they distributed um, versus that point? You know, I started out really excited about the, the future and the potential for investment DAOs being like the defining like ecosystem support and investment community. And today find myself somewhat, um, uh, you know, somewhat disappointed with the amount of front running that occurs within these communities, um, disappointed in, in the way that they're, they're constructing portfolios, the way that they're handling harvesting the incentive mechanism. That's a, that's a play the, the leaders, how they're remunerated versus broader community, there's a lot of things that I would have hoped for us to be much, much further along in, in 2022, but maybe I'm wrong on that. How do you guys look at this category? Yeah, no, Ryan, that's a, that's a really good point. I was really bold up on investment DAOs last year. I thought it was a really logical way to mix the builders with the capital allocators. You know, people that the builders that have direct access to their own projects who have a ton of advice for the other founders in the group. Um, they could save a ton of time. You know, if you're the founder of Macedon, you could obviously clearly have unique advice to help on their Web3 project, et cetera. You guys see where I'm going with this. The problem that I view with investment DAOs are 
where the core problem that I view is actually kind of a boring one. And it's one we all know about is just voting, right? If you want to have an investment club or you want to have a member managed fund, like by regulatory definition, everybody has to vote that has an LP stake and chasing people to vote as you scale from five to 50 people or more is insane, right? I mean, you have people that you love their opinion and, you know, we're all better to hear it. But most of the time, the 37th person's opinion doesn't matter anymore. And you just have to close the deal before you lose it. So I think that voting is a big one. I also think, Ryan, to your point that the leads in a lot of the DAOs I've seen are not strong enough or visionary enough as CEOs to be cat herders and really round up an absolute vision or, or a view for a lot of the investment DAOs. There are some that have done really well. Like, you know, we invested in C Club VC. We're extremely happy with their performance and what they've done because they have a strong lead, a clear vision, and they have a community of curated people involved that all kind of share a similar kind of ethos. So that kind of works. But as for investment DAOs winning, I'm not sure if they will because of a different reason. And the other reason is when you have mega funds in the space that are playing an AUM fee game versus a carry game, they no longer care about upside or or returns. All they care about is allocating and becoming index funds. And it's really hard for seed or pre-seed funds to compete with unlimited capital that's competing just for management fees versus upside. So I think that's also what really dissuades people from starting a seed stage fund versus just becoming a partner at a larger fund. Do we I would think that the three of us are 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 sort of the the three poster children of of being con, uh, like conservative and disciplined about AUM. Like I'm of the opinion that the mega funds, you know, show me somebody please show me a multi-billion dollar fund in history of venture capital that has returned DPI above three. That's not venture capital. Even, Two and a half. It's it's right? just an index fund at that or point, even, or or even two, yeah. right? <laughs> and and uh, like particularly, you know, I suppose I understand the financial incentivization of becoming a fee machine. I just find it to be an entirely uninteresting existence to lead. It's just like, like, why is that the way you want to lead your life? And, well, I mean, and I, to, I, to play devil's advocate, though, I mean, and again, I don't. I'm on the opposite opinion here. Like, you know, we run prop cap on a smaller fund, but. The, the difference though is, and I've thought about this a lot, is you are able to create a long lasting brand where people want to come, they want to build. You could have a one-stop shop, you could have legal, you could have developers, you can have all these things, but it is also kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. I would say maybe maybe just to go back to the to the Dow points you guys have made, um, you know, there there's at least three things I can think of that are really important. If you're, you know, running a fund and making investments, it's sourcing, it's due diligence, and it's portfolio construction. I mean, those are not the only three things we do, right? But those are kind of key to the investment process. I feel like DAOs could actually have a leg up in sourcing, right? Like you see Bessemer starting a DAO. And it's actually kind of interesting because, you know, DAOs can have a large number of people, and those large number of people could have incentives to bring opportunities to. Uh, to the DAO for consideration. And I've seen some of that being a member of, you know, Flamingo DAO, for example, right? They have excellent network into the space. They see a lot of the same opportunities, if not more, um, you know, than investors in the space see. So kudos to DAOs for, for being good at sourcing. Then you get into due diligence. I mean, to Tom's point, um, like I kind of am skeptical that 
uh, just this sort of naive system of like voting is a good way of processing whether a project is good. Like in my experience, you know, I, you know, at CoinFund, for example, like I have more expertise on the technology side. David Pakman has more expertise on the consumer tech side. Alex has more expertise on the kind of financial side, right? And all of those pieces are, first of all, necessary to do a good, well-rounded due diligence. Um, but a DAO is not really like well-organized to do that. And then secondly, there are times when you actually want non-consensus investments. You want something that most of the people think is ridiculous and horrifying, but you have so much conviction in it. You're like, you guys just don't understand, right? And sometimes those investments are the biggest ones. And those investments are essentially impossible in a system where, you know, the largest token holder has the last word. Um, and I mean, do you, do you not find that the the person who is not voting is not voting because they're out there front running the deal? Because that, Well, I mean, that's I, another, that's another whole the, set the of issues is where I was like, this is for yeah. the birds. I'm, I'm it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, like in this sense, DAOs are just so different from like private companies and private funds, right? Because they can't really hold their members to account about stuff like that, um, or they don't. The, the front um, works on the back end too. I mean, just exiting liquid positions. Oh, the if you have to vote sure. on it, it's even worse. You 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 yeah. can fully sandwich attack a DAO, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. VC and, MEV. And, yeah. and I'll and I'll just I'll just make my last point about like portfolio construction, right, guys? There's you know, there's portfolio construction and then there's capital allocation, right? Portfolio construction is a discipline that you probably have to go to school for or get a lot of experience in. And it's the, you know, it's the vocation of taking your investor capital, understanding the risk need, you know, tolerance, their, uh, you know, what they're trying to achieve in terms of returns and constructing a portfolio that achieves that financial mission. This is what like people on you know Wall Street do, and then there's capital allocation, which is when you put money in shit, um, right? Like, and I think like DAOs have been uh, really good at the latter, <laughs> um, but not necessarily the former. So I, you know, yeah, I'm you like see skeptical. a lot of like small sort of like what we call exposure bets, so like small bets, but then like massive numbers of them across the DAOs because of the the social construct of like, well, this guy's a member and this is his project since day one. Like we can't put nothing in it. So like, let's write him a 250K check or something like that. And then you have these yeah. DAOs of like, you know, a hundred six figure bets uh, of which it's just really, really difficult to have a DPI above two, three, four, five in this kind of construction. And, and that is the, you know, I I remain very open-minded and optimistic about the future that we will get this right, that we'll have the layers of confidentiality over time that you need in order to do privilege deals. But uh, I, I don't see great examples of it being executed very well in the current iteration of DAOs. And that's fine. Like we need this, like, you know, we need to evolve to that. Um, but as a capital allocator, you know, and I, from the sounds of things, I, I, I assume that you guys share this, that you're not, you know, you're not allocating to these investment DAOs because most of the time you think you can outperform them, right? Because of the, the fact that you have these natural advantages of 
confidentiality with an entrepreneur of, you know, of, of execution of quality due diligence within a team. You don't need 50 people to do due diligence. You need one great guy. Uh, and, and these types of, of advantages that, that a, a venture corporate still maintains over, over community driven DAOs, even when community driven DAOs have an advantage in deal sourcing. Right. Yeah. It's also, I, uh, sorry, Jake, FDF. No, no, I was just going to agree with Ryan and say, you know, I like generally I agree. Yeah. I, like I think a well-organized team, you know, of professionals can probably like do a good job of, of allocating versus like a random DAO. I do think that there are certain DAOs that have done well, like Flamingo, I think owing to just the, you know, the, the founders and the community there and how well organized they are, like that would probably be the biggest factor in their success. But I just don't think that like a random organization of people without great tech and, and UX and everything else um, who don't have experience in, in, the, in these fields, like, I don't think we can just say like, oh, we'll plop a bunch of people together and we'll have a great result. I just, I don't think that works that way. Now, is Flamengo a function of being super early to a really compelling asset class? And maybe we could switch gears there. I'd love to hear both of your views on where we are with NFTs, right? Last year at this time, they were the, literally the hottest thing on planet earth. And today um, we seem to be, to be experiencing a, a very expressive sort of like culling and leaning out of of the system uh how are you guys looking at nfts in in your own portfolio i know both of There's you one, uh, in different categories are, are are have really important nft assets in your portfolios yeah no i, I want to shift to nfts i just want to one last comment ryan and jake the one investment dow that i would probably look to invest in is an investment dow that is just full of sub guys so Holdco at the top, five subcos at the bottom, all five are specialized and concentrated. There's three people that make decisions per DAO. They're all experts. They're not overlapping. There's no reinvesting or harvesting, or sorry, no reinvesting. There is harvesting. All the money flows back up to the Holdco. And that's the way I think it would work. But yeah, no, the, the group dynamic doesn't work at scale. Yeah. I mean, this is something that you and I chat a lot of with, with uh, Gabby about um, yep. with respect to his, his sort of sub DAO. Um, architecture where you have like thematic focus among small groups, you know, two pizza teams have been the only thing that has ever changed the world and will continue to be. And you kind of like isolate these two pizza teams in relevant categories where they can, you know, they, they can have privileged access or, or some kind of advantage. And that, that seems like the correct architecture where you know where you have this this hierarchical system and privilege information flows up but not back down and and that would be something that's that's really interesting but to jake's point earlier you know we're not there on like a a, a unified sort of window into the dow sort of like the browser of the dow yet um such that 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 we can have that right and, and i would say we're we're now late I would have expected that by like 2019. Um, mm -hmm. I'm with you. Let's and, uh, and gentlemen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I need to jump. I need to jump off, uh, no unfortunately. Worries. But I'll just say, um, I'll just say like some quick thoughts about NFTs. I, you know, I appreciate Ryan that like NFT volumes have dropped down uh, significantly. 
but at the same time, if you look at the metrics, um, we're still doing like $500 million uh, in the last 30 days. You know, these are volumes of not exactly. Thank goodness for paid. Trump's NFT. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We have, we have some key drivers. But I would just say like, I would just say like for me, for me um, most of the DAO activity has been in, um, you know, collectibles, in-game assets and digital arts so far. But my thesis on NFT has always been that this is like financial rails for many, many different um, kind of classes of assets. And what's exciting is that the more people recognize that NFTs are a financial technology and the more like NFT financialization sort of sets in with products like, uh, you know, lending and borrowing with NFT collateral, NFT derivatives, NFT index indices, the more we can actually start to branch them out to newer spaces, right? Like you can see, movies and music going on chain as NFTs. You can see um, just all sorts of digital content, fonts, you know, icons, you know, clip art, stock photography, AI outputs, you name it. And then eventually we convert like, you know, uh, real estate. And in fact, it used to be the case that real estate projects were waiting for like security tokens. Now a lot of real estate projects choose NFTs as the way uh, to tokenize interest, interestingly enough. So I think we're kind of at a low of the market, but we're actually like really well set up where there's a lot of infrastructure development going on in NFTs that over the next cycles, you know, will really grow the space. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm not selling my NFTs quite yet. So Thank one, you, Jake. I know one you got data a hop, point. Jake, but I just really yeah. want to appreciate you coming okay. on. Thank you so much. Yeah, guys, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And good to see uh, both Ryan and Tom. Thanks. Ryan, you stay right there. You're not allowed to leave. Cool. <laughs> hey Ryan, sorry I cut you off there. Uh, what so one anecdotal data point that I would offer with respect to NFTs is for better or for worse, um, I have spent a lot of the last year chatting with uh, different major museums uh, around the world uh, in connection with Human One and the Rafiks and other things, but also um, with art traditional art financiers. Um, and whether it's, you know, traditional art folks, broadly museums or financiers, the refrain that I keep hearing over and over and over again is their interest in fidgetals, that they want some physical manifestation of the, the, the piece of, of, of digital art. And that's what they'll, you know, they'll underwrite. That's what they'll present to their audience. That's what they'll, they'll, they'll get excited about. And I'm kind of of the view at this point that, you know, you're not going to change the nature of the beast and that what we're recommending to most of our artists these days is to think about a physical manifestation of every digital piece that they put out, whether that's a print or whether that's a sculpture, whether whatever that is, it does enable some really unique characteristics that say, uh, a, a, you know, a traditional financier can then take custody of that asset and and they have you know kind of foreclosure possibility um or or a a museum can allow their you know their patrons who are baby boomers or even older to sort of have this like tactile connection to this otherwise digitally native piece and um i think i'm hopeful that that could become an important trend where the art will win when it's necessarily digital and necessarily physical. 
But how about you? Because I, you know, I think you have to be one of the defining uh, entrepreneurs and and investors in certainly the gaming assets of of NFTs. Um, how are you looking at your own portfolio and 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 where we go from here? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think the digital space is interesting. The thing that the thing that I'm wondering about, I mean, not to sidestep the, your question on the gaming web three side, but just to dial in on the web two side. The thing that I'm struggling with on that side is we've seen so many projects try and target mega brands like, you know, hey, we'll build an NFT shop for you or, you know, you can have your own marketplace or here's your own collection or, you know, here's your utility and we'll run your discord and et cetera, et cetera. And they just don't care. Right. Like we, we've seen some of the most connected founders that have relationships to all these brands and they just they just still don't care yet. Right. Like so asking them to put an NFT in every product or to own that relationship is hard. But I think it is coming and I think it gives them a lot of benefits. Like if you have an NFT in something, I mean, you have full blown ownership over that user relationship, right? It's no longer through Facebook ads or Google ads or whatever. You have a one to one relationship with them and that's pretty powerful. But again, I do think it's a ways away because to your earlier point that you opened up with, it's a biz dev issue, right? Like we just don't have the talent, I think, in crypto or the traditional talent to go target a lot of these people. And a lot of projects could be super successful if they leaned into the suits of web two and hired some biz dev killers with huge Rolodexes and just started rolling out, you know, serious sales efforts. I think it could be pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, we've seen some projects, uh, do great work and have outlier success just by understanding the business development side of creating a community. Yeah. You know, we've seen it in Solana, we've seen it in Polygon, we've seen it in Yuga Labs. Um, who who used a you know very famously used a, a Hollywood agent to sort of bootstrap uh, a bunch of influencers into uh, into board apes, and um, that's just the problem for a lot of people is that that's hard work, right? Like that's just like a slog. People don't want to do it. Got to pound the pavement and yeah. like go door to door and you, you know and and be talking with a hundred people for every three conversions. And and it's just a long, difficult road to to do that. Whereas, you know, last year at this time, just being able to throw anything up on OpenSea and be like, it's a community, uh, was was at least sort of a, a, a temporary path towards towards some level of success. Um, the other, am, oh, sorry, sorry the other thing. No, just to build on your point, the other thing that I struggle with on the NFT side to answer your question on the Web three side is the end game, right? Like if you have a collection, so you've made some serious investments into art, which I think is amazing, right? You've shown some of us them, they're all over, but on like the, I guess the more non-art NFT side, like let's say PFP collections or games, things like that, not so much games, let's just go PFP collections for right now. That yeah. it's really hard because if you're successful, you're boxing out your community by default, right? If you have a $200,000 PFP and there's only 10,000 of them, you're automatically boxing out a huge community. And then the idea becomes, okay, let's release more PFPs within that basket, which can and cannot work in some instances. But most of the time it becomes, we're making so much money, let's launch a movie, let's launch a game, let's launch t-shirts, let's build a brand around this. and as you and I both know, it's really fucking hard to launch a game, right? Like it takes years to build a triple A rated game. So that strategy probably isn't going to work unless they partner with somebody. And then on the IP side, 
I mean, putting your PFPs in a movie is interesting to the holders, but the world wants good content. If the movie gets a bad rotten or IMDb rating, nobody's going to watch it. Yeah. And I mean, this is part of the reason why we've leaned more into the art that, you know, we felt like, okay, we can't do everything, right? We can't like have the game, you know, you and I have talked a bunch about sort of the taxonomy of the NFT space where you've got like fine art and algo art and generative art. And then you've got PFPs, which are more of say a social club. And then, you know, the Venn diagram of PFPs and gaming assets assets have some overlap, but also some area that, that isn't overlap. And, and we sort of just got to this point kind of Q1, early Q2, where we're like, okay, like we can't be smart on all of it. And art was something that, that we felt like we had a pretty good thesis on. And then we had the advantage of having a lot of conversations and, and doors being opened in the traditional art community and museums and, and galleries and, uh, and auction houses and, and so on and so forth that it just like it kind of personally resonated with me. And I, there's part of me that, you know, my friend, my friend Pablo Rodriguez has made the the statement a bunch in the last little while that great art will win that like the, the importance of the NFT component will be seen less as a standalone thing itself and more as a keystone that just enables the the scarcity and and thus collectability and thus commercialization of great digital art and what we're going to see is this like great digital art that that now has a means of commercialization because you have a means of demonstrating sort of rarity provenance and scarcity the nft is is more of a uh of a certificate of authenticity in that regard um but it's difficult to 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 like try to 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 create one solution across all all of them you know the the thing that you just described is what we call internally the the multimedia uh web3 uh, strategy where they start with you know at the base layer you have a game and then you can own assets and characters in that game and then on top of that you build a merch strategy and a and a you know a show or some kind of media strategy and maybe that includes digital comics maybe that includes a Netflix thing, maybe that includes, you know, something else. Uh, and those are, the, you know, the, the reality is, is that the timeline of those and the feedback cycle of crypto are orders of magnitude apart, right? To 100%. build a multimedia yeah. strategy is a, a decadal thing. And in crypto, we're horrifically spoiled in that our our feedback loop is often measured in months and not even years. And so that will be a really difficult thing to reconcile over time. Uh, however, I also, very, I, I mean, I also just don't understand, like just license out the characters to, or the NFTs to legitimate movies and games. Why believe that yourself? A some value. Like, you know, it goes back to the biz dev effort. Like you don't have to recreate the wheel. The goal is to make them in other things by default. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, we've invested in, in one of these multi-layer web three strategies. And for most of the first half of the year, they were trying to raise nine figures to be able to build and develop their own full-fledged series. And we were like, guys, like just, just go and like 
cut the deal with Netflix, like, <laughs> like nine figures so that you can like be a first ever like movie producer. It's like, get this, like, get that out of your head and just like, yeah. try to, you know, in the, in the allegory of SpaceX, like try to deliver stuff to the space station before you go to Mars. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a good, that's a good comparison. It It is interesting too. I mean, you're having in a, in a space where you have community-driven ownership and content creation. You have NFT and PFP projects trying to centralize it and recreate like major video IP brands, right? It, it just seems a little bit off from what we wanted people to do, right? Like we wanted people themselves to create content around PFPs and NFTs, right? I don't know if we necessarily were looking for them to recreate Netflix or Hollywood, you know? Yeah, and well, and you know, to our point earlier, like broadly the Hollywood model has not worked for so many people that's why there's so much sort of hatred towards that model among you know most predominantly music artists but also but also actors and 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 film artists and and a whole range of other ones and and so uh, this is where i go back to what is interesting right now are crypto native experiments crypto native uh, use cases built by crypto natives for crypto natives. So like, I don't really want to see the like Hollywood film of board apes. I wouldn't mind seeing like a complete, like fan made universe of like, you know, really simple comics that may be cool. And you can buy those as an NFT. Um, the, but the other thing to your point too, is like, you're, you know, and I get, I'm pretty much bored with investing or backing legacy things, right? Like not a huge fan of equity deals from structuring perspective. I'm not a big fan of web two deals. I don't like things that touch the traditional world because you're by default saying we can't create something new and valuable, right? You're saying we need to create web two. We need to create TradFi because, you know, it's our only thing. And you're basically, when I hear that, it's basically like you've given up. I'd rather just get the money back, return the capital and start something else, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, at the end of the day, the thing that I will say to these founders is there's never been an industry as profitable on planet earth as programmable money. And so if it's not web three native, then you're, you know, you're kind of like, uh, a boy among men sort of thing. I, right? I'm with you. Not gonna, you're not gonna, Ryan, we got to hit on one final topic before we, sure. before we close up until next podcast. That is, and I'm sure my partners or, or our macro experts will get mad at me for trying to voice my opinion here, is the macro side of things, right? It, so I'll give my, my kind of basic yeah. view here, but I mean, when you look at something like treasuries yielding four and a half percent, whatever it is, and, and you can get in a Schwab account, that acts as like an absolute vacuum on risk, right? Oh, People sure. just take their money out, they put it in treasuries in their Schwab account, they come back later, they say, hey, crypto, you know, go deal with all your hacks and issues. We'll see you guys later. And the end effect of that is there's no funding. There's no value accrual. There's no increase in prices to fund things. People start to check out, right? And I think that's already happening. But the issue is crypto is the end game that we all want in place of this, right? Like we don't want the Federal Reserve dictating our wealth or moves. You know, we want to own something that you can't mess with the supply. There, you know, the demand's out there. Everything's auditable. So it seems like we're we're all prefaced and contingent on the actions of the Fed Reserve right now in crypto, but, and nobody wants to buy the alternative, which is crypto, which is ironic because it's a risk on asset. But my question for you is, you know, when do you think we'll finally see the full decoupling of crypto 
and I'll call it the Federal Reserve. Well, I mean, it's really interesting that over the last few years, and you and I have talked about this a bunch, we've seen the coupling of you yep. know, uh, global macro and crypto. Before, say, 2019, it, it, crypto and global macro, like I remember somebody, I think, in 2015 asking me if if I thought Bitcoin was going to go down because of the, the Greek debt crisis. I was like, what? What's <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with each other, son. My like, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But but now over the last two years, you've seen everybody like following Fed minutes, like you know, like it's gospel. And you know, and we would like to think as industry participants that we're still long-term uncorrelated, even if we're short-term correlated, right? And um, and you're right in that certainly DeFi has been decimated because. The reality is, is that the weighted average cost of capital of all investors globally has gone up, and you still have a a margin of necessary security in crypto that has also probably gone up because of the amount of vulnerabilities on bridges and 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 just attacks and things like that. So let's say you have a margin of security, you know, whether it's ten, whether it's fifteen. My God, please have your margin of security at least be double digits, but then plus a you know. We're going to see north of five Fed funds rate here in Q1. Um, so you've got like baseline 20% that you realistically have to return in order for you to be even, like even evaluated by sophisticated LPs or, you know, or, or just intelligent investors broadly. Um, and so I can tell you what we've done. In that our yielding book, we've you know we've evolved it to add other strategies beyond DeFi that we think are interesting. So you know it's no secret that we do a lot of MEV. Um, Delta neutral has been, become a, a really interesting thing for us. Uh, you know alternative strats that go beyond just vanilla DeFi have become an absolute like table stakes necessity of of playing the game. And then in in venture, I think w- what you're seeing is this this sort of like tight aggressive approach, and you're seeing a lot of uh, venture investors have really, um, you know, much more investor friendly conversations uh, that you couldn't have even proposed a year or two ago, right? You couldn't have even asked for a a, a founder to start their distribution schedule within six or twelve months. A year ago, they would have they would have just hung up on you, uh, and now that's like a conversation. Like, hey, guy, like you know, time is time is ticking. Wait, that <laughs> cost capital is up north yeah. of twenty. Like, we got bills to pay, so yeah. you know, you like we we better agree to a, 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 an appropriate schedule. And those are the those are the effects that we're seeing right now. Is that um, yielders have to get more creative, and venture investors. Are sharpening pencils uh, quite a bit, but, but what do you, what do you see? Because you know you're doing a lot of this stuff yourself. What, what what's your view? And you know, obviously, you you're as deep into global macro as it applies to crypto as anybody I know. So, what how do you look at it? Yeah, no, I I think you're right. Right, I think your your risk tolerance and what you have to underwrite makes sense. I mean, the way I've been thinking about it is, I think crypto investors are still a little too optimistic on crypto staying around these price levels, you know, you basically have a government that is intent on destroying markets and you're trying to play a risk on 
volatile asset where your marginal buyer is somebody deciding whether or not they want to buy Netflix or whether or not they want to buy ETH on Coinbase on the retail level. So I find it really hard to take a bullish liquid position here, given what's going on. But I mean, look, we're, what is it, 12 months into a bear market now? They're historically nine. I mean, crypto sells off ahead of equities and macro markets because it's more efficient. So maybe it bottoms earlier. You know, there are things here that point us to think, you know, hey, maybe this is a bottoming area, right? But look, the way I'm playing it is pretty simple on the VC side. I mean, you have to be disciplined on valuations, right? I mean, you cannot you cannot invest at the valuations you were paying six, 12 months ago, and they have to come down significantly. And a lot of the founders are first-time founders or second-time founders, but second during a complete bull market with an exit. So they don't exactly understand the change in valuations. And, you know, the, the valuations on the token side also have to come down too. I mean, investing... 10 to 20 and or 10 to 15 in a pre-seed with a two to one on the token, getting you to, you know, 20 to 30 mil on the token Val, you know, that's the new norm versus six months ago, seven months ago, it was 60 mil, right? Jake mentioned earlier. So yeah, I think we have to be honestly just disciplined on valuations. It's, it's a long road. Are you, are you playing a timeline to liquidity game as well? Cause that's something that we've gotten really sort of sharp penciled on uh, lately that like, you know, there was a period of time when we would have taken a four, five, six, seven year vest. And mm-hmm. now we're like, God, like seven years. Like, will we be I, I don't like, like that, 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 that's our, an eternity in crypto, right? I mean, look at, look at you. I mean, that's 75. You're in a totally different world seven years out. I mean, you got to ask, like, why do you need that long of a vest to be successful? I, it's tough. I mean, people don't want to wait around for it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just like it—it's it, the fastest, sort of most like Darwinist uh, industry in the history of the world mm-hmm. uh, to to like think in terms of so many generations in the future is just like a lens that that isn't realistic in this moment, um, and that doesn't mean that like we're just trying to take chip shots. And 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 turn around, you know, like turn around depressed valuations in the private round into whatever multiple we can get as it as it goes public. But it does mean that um, there is a conversation that is had today about timeline to liquidity that was unimaginable twelve months ago. Yeah, I mean, the other thing too is just you know, it's not just opportunity cost of capital; it's just opportunity cost of time. And that plays into the valuations as well. Like, you know, if I'm going to commit, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if I'm going to commit a significant amount of my time, my firm's time, our analyst time, you know, our network to a founder, you know, it's not like I want their, you know, their firstborn child, but I mean, it has to be enough that reflects that amount of time spent, right? I think you've dealt with this pretty well yourself because you have, you know, you have a large legacy book, you have your current book, and it takes a lot of time to, to handle all that. Yeah, fully agree. Let's uh, uh, let's cap it with a couple of uh, let's do it of twenty twenty three predictions here. Um, where you know, what do you think is the most interesting emerging category for for twenty twenty three? Easiest op- answer is AI. I mean, I hate to say it, I hate to join that bandwagon, but what do you think? I mean, it's. It's one of these things that it's such a zero to one moment that you can yep. like feel it in your stomach. 
You're like, uh-huh. it, it's one of those things that comes around once in a generation that you're like very clearly this will impact not millions of lives, but billions of lives fast and mm-hmm. in ways that we cannot imagine. And that's intellectually compelling. And it, it causes you to want to lean in. The The question that I have about, you know, Vitalik has this sort of famous tweet from four or five years ago of uh, if you're building an AI project on the blockchain, you should ask yourself if this is the way you want to live your life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, and it, and it, it made sense in it largely the, there still is the argument that just like the computational density that we're talking about within AI and the like the scalability restraints that we still live with in blockchain do do cause those two to be strange bedfellows. And, you know, for me to not like set up a, a new separate AI book that is completely decoupled from from the crypto book, I do find myself wondering where will be crossover between the two that unlocks important value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I mean, the, the smaller point that I'm struggling with right now is we're seeing an onslaught of decks of projects where it's AI plus this, AI to create that. And it, it, it's honestly, it's honestly somewhat difficult to figure out where the value accrues. You know, it's probably like early ETH days for you. You probably had the same, same, you know, questions for yourself, but it's hard to figure out, you know, where do they accrue all the value or does it just all flow to open AI, right? It's tough. I was just hard to figure out. Yeah. Fat, fat open fat. AI. <laughs> do we go along Microsoft? Who owns open AI? Is it? Yeah. Am I about to buy a stock uh, right now? Uh, <laughs> uh, open AI is actually a really interesting one. And and that actually dovetails with a with an interesting trend that we may I don't think it'll be a defining trend of twenty three but maybe we'll see more of it, which is regenerative financing, right? Where OpenAI started out as an open source nonprofit project, um, to my knowledge, it is neither of those two anymore. Um, and you know, I myself led a regenerative financing project in in twenty twenty two for for Maps that you may or may not see. Um, continue in a nonprofit context or or flip to 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 sort of for profit because of just market realities and uh and that's a big question there is you know can you continue to fund public goods in this you know first and foremost benevolent context when there is so much value you know being accrued in different parts of of that stack and can you keep the discipline to try to to you know keep this in, in its original ethos, and it, uh, you you know we've we've seen ourselves struggle with that, just given market realities, and and we've obviously seen OpenAI struggle with that quite a bit, and that's really a a, a big question for me is that can you keep the it, you know if fat protocols is true, and a lot of the value accrues to the base layer of that stack. Can you keep that open public goods or does human nature always win out? And those always evolve into for-profit models where people are, are capturing enormous sums of money. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out with, with open AI. What do you think? I'm scared, man. Kidding me. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, but, but to your, I, I think you have a, I think you have a much more fleshed out thesis than I do. Right. But the thing that I, I, the thing that I am pretty blown away about was 
how fast it's hitting the consumer market and how fast the iteration cycles are. Like when you go on, you know, Midjourney's uh, Discord and you know, disclosure, we're, we're invested in that through a fund. But oh, nice, good for you. Not our fund, a different fund. But no, but that's um, that, that, that's just a great asset to hold directly or indirectly. That, that I think. Yeah, I love I'm not sure if I could mention the the founders of that fund. They, they might get. They probably wouldn't mind. But I'll I'll be conservative here. They've done really well, and they're great guys and girls. But when you log on to Midjourney and you generated a picture, call it two months ago or whenever they launched you were blown away, right? It was perfect. People started seriously iterating on what they were adding in. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months and you've chat GPT-3 and lawyers are saying that their jobs are gone, right? Hopefully, right? You know, fingers crossed. But um, it's the iteration cycle is insane, right? So I think once we start to see AI do things that really change crypto in a good way, I think we're there, right? Like smart, you know, uh, auditing smart contracts through AI, there's billions of lines of code. That would be amazing. Writing code would be amazing. You know, rebalancing Uniswap LP positions would be nice. You know, there's a lot of things that I think AI can do. But again, it is also scary because the flip side also works. You know, what if you have the AI that's a hacker that's specifically targeted towards your portfolio or your positions or things like that? I think it get kind of interesting. So. I don't know. When the AIs compete, I hope that we have the stronger version. But I really liked your end of your questions, Ryan. These are you solid. know what's an interesting thing about AI is that because we're hitting the knee of the curve now, it means that, and this comes from from my friend and former partner Olaf Carlson. We, we he and I had dinner a while back, and and he and he was saying, uh, because we're doing a lot of this training data right now, it means that early twenty twenties culture will sort of be the baseline training data that influences and affects <laughs> the entire curve of, of AI. So like the most important cultural era that that affects us in like 2040 and 2050 will actually be the early 2020s uh, because it was kind of the baseline of the training data that that sort of led to everything else, which is which is certainly an interesting thing for 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 you know creators and 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 culture and artists and and so on and so forth that they'll have such a significant Im impact on future generations. Yeah. I, all right. Good. So when I'm 90 years old, the AI will be talking to me. About yeah, it'll still be Adesa you know, and Rufus, vaporwave and and <laughs> 80s retro and and all this cool stuff. Ryan, we have to cut this off because you know I'm just going to talk to you for another eight hours. So we have to draw the line <laughs> somewhere here, man. I love talking well, to you. It was uh it it's great to do this and uh and I'm I'm grateful for for the time that we have and and just so uh, uh proud and impressed of the trajectory that you've taken in this space. Um yeah. uh, love what you're doing and love what your team does and and love being on here. Ryan, you're criminally underfollowed. I don't want to tell people that you're my first call for advice and for abstract thinking because <laughs> you might get too busy and I might not be able to reach you. So um, that's okay. We'll, you we'll know me. I don't pick up the phone anyway. You don't. You really <laughs> don't, man. <laughs> right. Thanks so much for coming on, man. All right, bud. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Delphi podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on your podcast app, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for our next episode. Out soon.